enjoy the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. very late. Travel and work kicked my ass thoroughly in the hot and fiery month of August. Um, I did a lot of traveling, and I did a lot of new job, and it kind of just all got away from me. So apologies there. Um, What else happened that I can talk about? Uh, The eclipse was cool. I heard a lot more about it in the days leading up to it um, than I had already talked about in that podcast. I kind of wish I could do a recap of all the fun facts and the neat images and the really weird stories that I heard, but I have a different plan for this podcast, and that plan is a quick and dirty overview of space probes through the ages. I went to Colorado right before the eclipse, just for the weekend to see my lovely cousin get married, Uh, and a different cousin is working on building a Mars probe for a company in the Middle East. I know a lot of engineering folks, considering that I am firmly in the liberal arts, Um, so hopefully that perspective will be helpful in the future. Anyway, Gavin showed me a little of what he's working on, because I don't think this kind of stuff needs to be top secret anymore. Back in the day, though, and I mean the Cold War kind of day, it was a big secret. I want to get into this more later in another episode, but from what I already understand of the space race of the late 1940s to the early 1970s, It was a race between Russia and the U.S. to get something in the air that could spy on people and triangulate all these exciting new nuclear weapons that we had going for us. And the Russians did it all very, very well. I used Wikipedia a lot to get a comprehensive, less U.S.-centric timeline of events. NASA was dominating all of my searches when I tried to find out about probes sent up during this time. And as someone with a lot of distance from the Cold War, approaching this from a purely scientific appreciation standpoint, it was kind of delightful to see every single probe listed with first as part of its mission. First space research flight, first creatures in space, first signals from space, first impact into another world, first mid-course corrections and spin stabilization. The space race pushed us as a species. From what I've read, astronomy and the study of space floundered for a while at the turn of the 20th century because folks didn't see the point in looking at distant bodies. It didn't affect any of us on Earth. And then this, just half a century later, and we're frantically sending anything we can up there, trying to get into orbit, trying to get to the moon, to the sun, to Mars, beyond anything that's already been seen. And now? I'm not really informed enough to feel confident speaking in absolutes here, but there's a calm right now. The urgency's gone. We've at least taken a photo of every big planet in our solar system. We've had Hubble and other long-range space telescopes out there getting some majorly amazing photos in spectrums we can't see with the naked eye. It's all just looking at the data and loving it. At least that's what I'd be doing if I was an astronomer. They probably wouldn't let me astronomy, though. I'd be too excited. (laughs) 
NASA's funding was cut during Obama's presidential term, and I can't see the current guy investing in an industry that has such a collaborative attitude with a pretty free exchange of knowledge and ideas with other countries. But in this calm, I think folks are starting to look up and realize how much shit we've put up there and just left. We left it because we had to. It's hard enough getting something out of Earth's gravity into an orbit, maybe out of the orbit and into a new orbit. Getting it back to Earth? Not really a priority. Things break, instruments decay, power sources shut down, and then a probe or orbiter is dead in the water, nothing but perpetual motion in a vacuum until something changes. Newton's first law of inertia. There's a lot of space junk up there. The idea of going up into space using technological means, okay, a lot of people have wanted to fly through the ages, and a lot of poets have talked about the stars and moon and sun and other space objects, but I suppose the person who gets credit for addressing the ways in which we are kept from just jumping up and going to space is Sir Isaac Newton. He wrote his Philosophi Naturalis Principia Mathematica and published it in 1686, outlining his good old three laws of motion, his law of universal gravitation, and a derivation of Kepler's laws for the motion of the planets. Over a hundred years later, the British mathematician William Moore based his calculations of rocket mechanics on Newton's third law of motion, which boils down to, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Moore published his treatise on the motion of rockets in 1813 and kind of launched rocket science. And yes, the pun is intended. Ninety years after Moore's treatise, the Russian rocket scientist Konstantin Tsiolkovsky published The Exploration of Cosmic Space by Means of Reaction Devices, which was the first serious work published that addressed the possibility of space exploration. Travel in space had been addressed, but it was purely in the realm of science fiction. Kind of the most famous example is H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds, which is about Martians invading and attacking Earth. I haven't read it, but I know the ending twist, and it's pretty interesting. I'm a huge fan of books about humans interacting with aliens from an anthropological and linguistic standpoint, though, so militarized invasion shit isn't super interesting to me. It was interesting to a young Robert H. Goddard, though, War of the Worlds was completely published in 1898. Uh, It had previously been serialized in magazines, uh, which was a pretty common way of publishing novels. And Goddard got inspired by the book. In 1914, Goddard received two patents for rockets through the U.S. Patent Office. His first patent described a multi-stage rocket, and the second described a rocket fueled by gasoline and liquid nitrous oxide. Five years later, he published A Method of Reaching Extreme Altitudes, which went into his mathematical theories about rocket flight and his research into solid fuel and liquid fuel rockets. This work was hugely influential in rocket science, and both the liquid-fueled rocket and multi-stage rocket led to the Apollo 11 moon landing 71 years after War of the Worlds was published. I'm sad to say I won't be talking about moon landings in this podcast. Instead, I will just say that in 1926... Goddard launched the first successful liquid-fueled rocket from a homemade pipe frame. It rose 41 feet in two and a half seconds and reached a speed of about 60 miles per hour, proving the practicality of liquid-propelled rockets. By 1935, Goddard was using gyroscopes to control rockets. The first satellite to make it into space using kerosene power, grit, and a whole lot of delicate calculation was Sputnik 1. It was a Russian satellite about the size of a beach ball. It weighed 184 pounds, and 
All it really did was beep and orbit the Earth from when it was launched into an elliptical orbit in 1957 to when its orbit decayed and sent it back to Earth in 1958. It was proof of concept that such an amazing feat was possible. Sputnik 1 did have five scientific mission objectives. To test the method of placing an artificial satellite into Earth's orbit, to provide information on the density of the atmosphere by calculating its lifetime in its orbit, to test radio and optical orbital tracking methods, to determine the effect of the atmosphere on radio waves, and to check principles of pressurization. In total, its mission lasted 21 days before Russia lost contact with it. Sputnik 2, launched the same year as Sputnik 1, was the first spacecraft to contain a living creature, Laika, a female Russian street mutt who had at least five other nicknames besides Laika. Sputnik 1 paved the way, though, and that little satellite scared the shit out of America. It wasn't entirely unexpected, though. According to an excerpt from Paul Dixon's book Sputnik, The Shock of the Century, President Dwight D. Eisenhower subscribed to the belief that space was free ground and satellites should be able to fly over other countries. At the time Sputnik sputtered up to the stars, the Eisenhower administration was trying to build a secret spy satellite. As Dixon says, quote, instead of being concerned with winning the first round of the space race, Eisenhower and his National Security Council were much more interested in launching surveillance satellites that could tell American intelligence where every Soviet missile was located. That kind of comes back to the idea I talked about last episode, where being first doesn't always matter. What's important is doing something well. Sputnik did its job, though. No one can fault the satellite for that. It also came back to Earth, which was not always the case for satellites. It depends on the purpose, of course, but there are a lot of abandoned satellites out there now because we didn't try to get these data-gathering devices to orbit Earth. Instead, scientists and astronomers had to figure out how to get them to other planets and other orbits. I've been using the term satellite kind of loosely, mostly because it adds drama, and I think it's the most instantly recognizable word for an unmanned spacecraft. The only manned satellite I can think of is the International Space Station. Most satellites are designed to stay in space and never come down, and you can't put living things up there and expect them to stay living in those kinds of conditions. So satellites orbit. They may orbit Earth, or they may orbit the sun at a certain distance, or they may orbit another planet or moon, but they're going around and around and around, and they are not coming down. Probes are sent into space, also unmanned, and they collect data. They are aimed at a specific target that astronauts want to learn more about. They're affected by gravity, just like everything in space is affected by gravity, but they aren't pulled into calculated orbits the way that satellites are. I guess Sputnik 1 was technically a probe because it was expected to fall back to Earth, and that was a part of its data-gathering mission. So, America's first successful satellite probe was Explorer 1, launched in 1958. They managed to build it in response to the Russian Sputnik satellites less than three months after Sputnik 1 launched. Spite is a very strong motivator indeed. (laughs) Explorer 1 had a mission to detect the radiation outside Earth's atmosphere, and what came back were suspiciously low levels. James Van Allen was the scientist who had launched the experiment, though he didn't launch the satellite itself, and he had a theory that the detector had been saturated by strong radiation that was actually within the Earth's atmosphere. The belts of radiation that later satellites detected in Earth's atmosphere were named after him. They're called the Van Allen belts. Explorer 1 made its last transmission just a few months after it had launched, but it didn't burn up in our atmosphere until 1970. The second American satellite that made it up, 
there were a few failures in there. Vanguard 1A and 1B and Explorer 2 didn't make it. But the second American satellite was Vanguard 1C, and it's still up there. It's the first solar-powered satellite, and it was sent up in 1958 on St. Patrick's Day. Its purpose was to test the launch capabilities of a three-stage launch vehicle and the effects of the environment on a satellite and its systems in Earth's orbit. Boy, howdy, did it work. Vanguard 1C won't come down until about 2020. Also in 1958, Russia sent up Sputnik 3, a research satellite that explored the upper atmosphere of Earth. In December that same year, America sent up SCORE, the world's first communications satellite, which tested a communications relay system and beamed a recorded Christmas message of goodwill and peace from President Dwight D. Eisenhower to countries around the world. That sounds kind of sweet, but SCORE, which stands for Signal Communications by Orbital Relay Equipment, it wasn't a NASA launch device. It was developed by the U.S. Army Signal Corps and was sent up attached to the nose cone of an Atlas missile that also went into orbit around Earth. They were testing the rocket for military as well as space exploration uses. So, kind of sinister, actually. Artificial satellites stayed pretty close to Earth during the space race, but there was a big push for the moon with new spacefaring constructs called spacecrafts. These are vehicles that were pilotable to various extents and were used for traveling in space. The sun and the moon were the first things that American astronomers and engineers wanted to investigate. Russia beat America to both the sun and the moon, as in 1959 the Russian satellite Luna 1 failed to hit the moon and was flung into a heliocentric orbit instead. Later that same year in September, Russia succeeded in hitting the moon with Luna 2. A month later, Luna 3 orbited the moon and photographed the dark side. In America, this is when a series of probes and spacecraft called Pioneer began to make attempts on the moon. President Eisenhower had given the U.S. Air Force and U.S. Army permission to launch two lunar probes each in 1958. These probes would have made close flybys of the moon to take photographs and collect data on radiation levels. Each branch of the military picked a different company to make these probes. The Air Force picked TRW Incorporated, which has since been acquired by another company, the Army picked the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which still exists and is owned by NASA and managed by Caltech. TRW built Pioneer 1 and 2. JPL built Pioneer 3 and 4. All of these probes failed to reach their intended lunar trajectories, except Pioneer 4, which launched in 1959 and was a partial success. It ended up too far from the moon to take any photos, but the Jet Propulsion Lab's website gave it a positive spin by saying that it gave deep space navigators experience in tracking space objects. In 1961, both Russia and America managed to get a man into space and back down without killing him, which was awesome. That same year, President John F. Kennedy challenged America to send a man to the moon and return him safely to Earth. Discussing the moon landing should be a whole separate episode, though, so we're going to leave that behind again. The 60s were when everybody with the money to fund a space program did so, not just America and Russia. America actually helped some countries get their satellites up there. Britain got Ariel 1, Canada got Alouette 1, and Italy got San Marco 1, all launched from American rockets between 1962 and 1964. In 1965, France got the satellite Asterix up to space without any American help, but the U.S. did assist Australia in 1967 with RESAT, the Weapons Research Establishment Satellite. Despite the name, it was part of a collaborative mission with the U.S. to improve our understanding of the effect of the upper atmosphere on climate and weather. 
The satellite was developed using advanced technology and existing low-cost launch facilities at Woomera, which is delightful to say. Okay, let's move on to probes that investigated the sun. A year earlier, in 1960, Pioneer 5 had launched. It was originally intended to perform a flyby of Venus, but the mission was switched to taking on a direct solar orbit trajectory, and it successfully reached a heliocentric orbit between Earth and Venus to provide the first map of the interplanetary magnetic field. The Pioneer series of probes numbered 6 through 9 were launched into solar orbit between 1965 and 1968. They all looked the same, 37 inches in diameter and by 35 inches high, with some poles sticking off of them every which way. They formed a ring of solar weather stations spaced along Earth's orbit and were used to predict solar storms. They've been replaced since the 60s with solar monitoring satellites like the Advanced Composition Explorer, or ACE, and by the International Solar and Heliospheric Observatory, or SOHO. Both were launched in the late 90s and have been monitoring solar activity ever since. I'll come back to the Pioneer spacecraft series, but even before Pioneer 6 through 9 were launched, NASA had begun the Mariner series. While the Pioneers had only been about 13 pounds each, the Jet Propulsion Lab had to design a much larger spacecraft for the planned mission to Venus. This was all happening during the time period where people thought that Venus might be just like Earth but warmer, with conditions similar to the time of the dinosaurs. The first Mariner's guidance system failed shortly after launch, and it had to be destroyed after five minutes of flight, but that same year, in 1962, Mariner 2 was a success. It did a flyby of Venus later that year and confirmed it had temperatures and pressures that couldn't support life on, like, Earth. You can listen to my podcast on planets to hear more about what Venus is actually like. Mariners 3 and 4 went to Mars, which I'll talk about in a moment, and Mariner 5 visited Venus again in 1967. Mariners 6 through 9 went to Mars, and Mariner 10 had a very special mission. Launched in 1973, Mariner 10 conducted a third flyby of Venus, then used the gravitational pull of this planet to swing it into a trajectory that would take it to Mercury. Between 1974 and 1975, Mariner 10 passed Mercury three times and took over 2,800 photographs, revealing most of Mercury's surface. This was an amazing mission because it also gained the Jet Propulsion Lab some experience with a dual-planet gravity assist mission, basically where you use one planet's gravity to launch it towards another planet. The next American probe mission to Venus was in 1989, when NASA launched Magellan, or the Venus Radar Mapper, which mapped about 98% of Venus's surface. If you listened to the Planetary Podcast, you'll recall how hard that is, because Venus is mostly covered in clouds. The Magellan used what NASA describes as synthetic aperture radar, which, to me, that means that they didn't use visible light wavelength imaging technology to map Venus. They used a different kind of detecting technology, maybe radio waves bouncing from the surface to help map the shape of the terrain. I googled synthetic aperture radar, and it is absolutely impenetrable to me what it does. So just trust me when I say they got some cool maps of Venus out of the mission. (laughs) The last mission to Mercury was in 2004 with the MESSENGER spacecraft, which stands for Mercury Surface, Space Environment, Geochemistry, and Ranging Spacecraft. 
That guy had a 10-year mission total, with four years spent at Mercury itself and seven years to make it that far. It did the same thing as Magellan, taking images of Mercury's surface, but since Mercury doesn't have an atmosphere, this was a whole lot easier to do. Messenger ultimately impacted on Mercury's surface at the end of its mission. Let's move beyond the inner circle of Earth, Moon, Mercury, Venus, and the Sun to talk about the next planet along, Mars. As I said earlier, Mariners 3 and 4 were sent to photograph Mars in 1964, and while Mariner 3 malfunctioned, Mariner 4 performed a Mars flyby and photographed the planet. Just like with Venus, people had been hoping that Mars would be Earth-like in its appearance. Unfortunately, it was cold, cratered, and as empty as the moon, so that was a downer. The Mariner 6 and Mariner 7 probes participated in a two-spacecraft mission to Mars in 1969, launched a month apart from each other. They flew over Mars and sent back images that proved that Mars isn't completely like the moon, because the planet has parts of it that were relatively smooth, not totally cratered the way our moon is. Mariner 6 and 7 also confirmed that Mars has a surface pressure about 1% that of Earth, so not a lot of atmosphere, and that the surface temperature of the planet was below the freezing point of water. Mariner 8 failed during launch and ended up in the Atlantic Ocean in 1971, but that same year, Mariner 9 was sent out on what the Jet Propulsion Lab considers its, quote, greatest planetary success to date. Mariner 9 was the first spacecraft to achieve orbit around another planet. It was able to photograph the entire surface of Mars, including how lopsided it is. Its southern hemisphere has more volume than its northern hemisphere. It also captured the fact that there had once been water on the surface of the planet. It lasted nearly a year before it ran out of fuel and was shut down in 1972. Mariner 9's images of Mars were used to make the first accurate planetary map of the planet, and a canyon on Mars is named after this little probe, the Valeris Marineris, which sounds more like Marinera to me, but maybe I'm just hungry. (laughs) Thus far, it's all been orbiters and flyby probes sent out but Mars is pretty special. Some lander probes have been sent to Mars. Landers are yet another type of exploratory spacecraft, but they are designed to land on the surface of a planet and photograph and take samples of things on the ground level. In 1975, NASA launched two orbiter spacecraft equipped with landers, Viking 1 and 2. Each orbiter-lander pair flew to the planet together and entered Mars' orbit. The landers then separated and descended to the planet's surface. In addition to photographing the surface of Mars, the two Viking landers were looking into possible signs of life. Their experiments didn't come up with any clear evidence for living microorganisms in the soil near the landing sites. Uh, Viking 1 had landed at Chrysae Planitia, the Golden Plain, and Viking 2 had landed at Utopia Planitia. I don't know where those are, but those are very good names. Um, It's kind of cool how everything's mapped and named on these planets that we haven't actually tangibly visited. Even though the Viking lander's mission was planned to last 90 days after they made contact with the planet's surface, both the orbiters and the landers survived long beyond what was expected of their lifetimes. Viking 2's lander lasted until 1980, and Viking 1's lasted until 1982. In 1996, NASA sent the Mars Pathfinder lander with a rover called Sojourner to check check out Mars's surface. This was the first robotic rover on Mars, which is very cool. Sojourner's mission ended in 1997, which was, again, an extension beyond what scientists had projected for the mission duration. There have been a few other rovers and orbiters sent out by the United States, including the still-operational Opportunity and Curiosity. 
Opportunity was launched in 2003 and has well outlasted the 90-day projection for her mission. Opportunity was sent with a twin rover called Spirit, but that poor guy got stuck in soft soil, and her mission ended in 2011. The rover Curiosity landed on Mars in 2012 and confirmed in 2013 that at one point in history, conditions on Mars were favorable for life. Curiosity was supposed to last a Martian year, or 687 Earth days, but it's still going strong, so scientists are using it. I mentioned it in the podcast about planets, but we've sent quite a few probes to the outer reaches of our solar system and beyond. Remember the Pioneer spacecraft project I talked about earlier? Well, Pioneer 10 made it out to Jupiter. It was launched in 1972 and did a flyby in 1973, transmitting about 500 images of this planet. It didn't just photograph Jupiter, though. It was the first spacecraft to make it through the asteroid belt that exists between Mars and Jupiter, and it crossed the orbits of Saturn and Neptune as it headed vaguely towards the red star Aldebaran at the constellation Taurus. NASA hasn't detected a signal from Pioneer 10 since 2003. The satellite contains an aluminum plaque with diagrams of a man and a woman. I have no idea if that's as creepy as it sounds. Um, It also has diagrams of our solar system and its location relative to 14 different pulsar stars, just in case intelligent life intercepts it. Pioneer 11 was also launched a year after Pioneer 10, with a mission to study the asteroid belt, the environment around Jupiter and Saturn, and eventually the outer reaches of the solar system. Its flyby of Jupiter yielded photographs of that planet's polar regions, and it used Jupiter's gravity to swing into a flyby course with Saturn. It discovered new rings of Saturn, photographed the planet, and did some preliminary analysis of what it's made of. Data suggested that Saturn is primarily liquid hydrogen. Pioneer 11 then headed off in the opposite direction of Pioneer 10, heading towards the center of the Milky Way galaxy, which is around the constellation Sagittarius. NASA lost contact with it in 1995, but it also has a plaque, in case any aliens pick it up. (laughs) NASA launched the Juno spacecraft in 2011 to determine how Jupiter formed and evolved, and uh, this is a funny mission, because Jupiter is named after the ruler of the Roman pantheon, and all the moons around Jupiter are named after various uh, sexual conquests of the god Jupiter. The goddess Juno was Jupiter's wife, so the spacecraft going to check on Jupiter is named after Jupiter's wife, out to see what her husband has gotten up to. And that's hilarious. Well done, scientists. Alright, so Pioneer 11 made it out to Saturn, and so did the more recent Cassini-Huygens spacecraft, which was launched in 1997 as a collaboration between the U.S., the European Space Agency, and Italy. The Cassini orbiter made it to Saturn in 2004, and its mission will end uh, this month, actually, on September 15th. Cassini was observing Saturn's moons, and it sent down a special probe named Huygens to take a look at Saturn's moon Titan, which is the only body in the solar system known to possess surface lakes and seas, which were spotted by Voyager 1 when it flew by in 1980. I talked about all of this in Episode 8, the Planets podcast, but Huygens landed on the surface of Titan in 2005 and discovered that, because its surface temperature is negative 292 degrees Fahrenheit, the lakes are made of methane and ethane. No life there, sorry. The only other probes that made it out to Saturn and out to the further regions of the solar system, like Uranus and Neptune, are Voyager 1 and 2. I want to do a whole episode about the Voyager probes because I saw a really good drunk history episode about Carl Sagan and Anne Dryan's work with them, 
but I don't feel bad dropping a mention of some of the wonderful satellites and spacecraft that have made it to the nether regions of space. Voyager 1 was originally called Mariner 11, and Voyager 2 was Mariner 12. They were both launched in 1977. The primary mission of the Voyager project was to explore Jupiter and Saturn. Voyager 1 discovered active volcanoes on Io and Jupiter's ring system, and Voyager 2 investigated the moon Europa. Voyager 1 approached Saturn's moon Titan in 1980 and investigated Saturn's rings. It then took off into the outer reaches of space. Voyager 2 looked into several of Saturn's moons, then went on to approach Uranus in 1986, discovering its wonky magnetosphere and the dark rings that are around it. It managed to photograph Neptune in 1989, discovered six new moons there, the planet's rings, and Neptune's moon Triton. As it moved on to the outer reaches of the solar system, engineers turned off its cameras to save power. Voyager 1 is the most distant human-made object in the universe. In August of 2012, Voyager 1 crossed out of the heliosphere and into interstellar space, meaning it is officially outside of the sun's magnetic field and into the region of space that contains material ejected by the death of nearby stars millions of years ago. Voyager 2 is still not in interstellar space yet, but people are as interested to see what they can learn about when it crosses into the heliosheath, which is the outermost layer of the heliosphere. According to the Voyager mission's website, quote, the Voyager message is carried by a phonograph record, a 12-inch gold-plated copper disc containing sounds and images selected to portray the diversity of life and culture on Earth. I'll look into all of that later, but we should move on. New Horizons was sent out to image Pluto in the Kuiper Belt in 2006. It got a good gravity boost by swinging past Jupiter and conducted a six-month-long reconnaissance flyby study of Pluto and its moons just two years ago, in 2015. It's expected to head farther into the Kuiper Belt to examine some more of the ancient, mini-icy worlds at least a billion miles beyond Neptune's orbit, though it's waiting on NASA approval for this mission continuation. We'll be returning to Earth now, or Earth-adjacent. There are a ton of satellites orbiting Earth, but some have greater astronomical significance. The Hubble Space Telescope was one of the four great observatories that NASA launched beginning in the 1990s to photograph space using different kinds of light. The Hubble T is still orbiting Earth, beaming back images of space taken at various frequencies of light, but it will be replaced in 2018 by the James Webb Space Telescope, which will be bigger than Hubble T, but it won't orbit Earth. Instead, it's going to orbit the sun in a spot called the Lagrange Point. I talked about all of that way more in episode 3, which was about the Hubble Space Telescope, so you can go ahead and check that out for more information if you're curious. NASA's second great observatory was launched in 1991 and brought down from orbit safely in 2000. This was the Compton Gamma Ray Observatory, named after Arthur Holly Compton, who invented the process of gamma ray detection that all four detection instruments on the observatory used. This is the only one of the fleet that was actually brought down from the sky, though. The Chandra X-ray Observatory is still up there after being launched in 1999, and it has a Flickr account if you're interested in seeing what it has photographed. Chandra takes its name from the Sanskrit word for moon and has an open-sourced photography policy, so all scientists all over the world can see X-ray images of deep space. Finally, the Spitzer Space Telescope, named after Lyman Spitzer Jr., 
detects infrared radiation, which primarily manifests as heat radiation. Spitzer's highly sensitive instruments can see cosmic regions that are hidden from optical telescopes, including dusty star nurseries, the centers of galaxies, newly forming planetary systems, and cooler space objects like failed stars, which are brown dwarfs, extrasolar planets, giant molecular clouds, and organic molecules. There have been other telescopes that employed spectroscopy to see the universe in different ways and gather specific data using these different special eyes. The Einstein X-ray Observatory, operated between 1978 and 1981 to 1982, and it was kind of the precursor to Chandra because it took X-ray images. A joint venture between NASA and the Japanese astronomical body NASDA resulted in the Advanced Satellite for Cosmology and Astrophysics, which lasted from 1993 to 2001 and it improved on the Einstein X-ray Observatory's X-ray imaging techniques. The International Ultraviolet Explorer operated between 1978 and 1996, and you can guess what light range it looked at. (laughs) It was followed by the Extreme Ultraviolet Explorer in 1992, and that guy lasted until 2001, leading to insights about white dwarf stars, cool stars like our own sun, and certain binary star types. The Far Ultraviolet Spectroscopic Explorer, or FUSE satellite, was launched in 1999, and it lasted until 2007, taking higher spectral resolution photos of a very small region of the ultraviolet spectrum. I mentioned the James Webb Telescope, but there are a couple other satellites and probes in the works as well. The Origins Spectral Interpretation Resource Identification Security Regolith Explorer, also known as OSIRIS-REx, Oh my god, these scientists really want to make the acronyms work. Uh, That spacecraft is going to be the first American mission to carry samples from an asteroid back to Earth. It launched a year ago, in 2016, and is heading towards the primitive near-Earth asteroid Bennu, which it should reach in 2018. It will then map the asteroid and eventually take a sample from Bennu's surface, and then return to Earth by 2023. This is far from the first mission to explore asteroids. The Cassini orbiter made observations when it passed through the asteroid belt on its way to Saturn, and there's a Japanese satellite called Hayabusa 2 en route to asteroid 1999JU3, and it had its 1,000th day in space on August 29th, according to the probe's Twitter feed. (laughs) Finally, Chandrayaan-2 will build on the mission of the Indian Space Research Organization's lunar spacecraft Chandrayaan-1 to map the area below the moon's crust, conducting a detailed study of the moon's exterior. This mission is still in the development stages. And then, of course, as my cousin Gavin proves, there are countless organizations working to launch satellites on behalf of corporations and businesses, as well as in the interest of furthering astronomical research. The British science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke was the one to propose the possibility of having communication satellites in a geosynchronous orbit in 1945. This meant that an object would be orbiting Earth at an orbital period that matched Earth's rotation on its axis. So, from the perspective of an observer on Earth's surface, the satellite would return to exactly the same position in the sky after a period of one day. A special kind of geosynchronous orbit is a geostationary orbit, which orbits directly above the equator of Earth and appears stationary, always in the same point in the sky to observers on Earth's surface. The first communication satellite placed in a geostationary orbit was SYNCOM-3. Geostationary orbits have been in common use ever since, in particular for satellite television. 
They were used for phone service, but that's being replaced with fiber optics and data and all this other stuff that's not relevant to space. <laughs> Just about the lowest altitude a satellite can orbit at without falling back to Earth is a low Earth orbit of between 330 and 2,000 kilometers. The Hubble T and the International Space Station orbit Earth at this distance, in this distance range. Higher satellites are in the medium Earth orbit, at about 20,000 kilometers up. Many navigational satellites are at this orbit, like GPS satellites. Then there is an area of Earth's atmosphere, 35,786 kilometers directly above the equator, where a satellite orbits the Earth at the same speed the Earth is rotating. This area is called the Clark Belt, in honor of that author I mentioned earlier, Arthur C. Clark. Most satellites sent up by various countries and businesses orbit in this area of space. There's lots of belts around Earth, actually. We've got the Van Allen belts, where radiation lives in our planet's atmosphere, and now the Clark belts, where satellites can orbit without falling back down. That's the problem, though. Nothing's falling back down. It's all still out there. I found an amazing infographic, uh, I'll link it on the site, but reporters David Yanofsky and Tim Fernholtz put it together, and it's a map of the approximate location of all the junk orbiting Earth. It's intimidating to look at. They've sourced the location of each satellite, and when the info's available, how big it is. There's a lot of shit out there. One of my favorite newspaper comics, Cul-de-sac by Richard Thompson, had a comic that I cut out and hung up on my wall in college. The older brother character, Petey, is looking up at the night sky with his little sister Alice. She asks what's up there, and he says, quote, Well, there's dust everywhere, and there's all kinds of trash, food wrappers and broken parts of things and gloves and shoes, and gas giants, and black holes and rocks and dirt, and there's old TV shows and strange creatures, and there's unidentifiable stuff that no one can explain. And it's expanding all the time. Toss in a few trillion stuffed toys and it'll be just like your room. Petey is speaking some serious truth in that moment. <laughs> so I managed to talk a lot about probes today, which I'm pretty proud of. There are a ton of these probes and satellites and orbiters and landers, though, and I couldn't really find a clear, comprehensive, helpful list of them. Wikipedia got pretty close, but they didn't do a great job hitting all the satellites and orbiters sent out, and they're not a great resource to use, uh, just from an academic standpoint. I'm going to be compiling a list of all the satellites and probes I mentioned in this podcast, and I'll add that to the sources for this episode when it's done, but it's going to take me a little while. I like HTML as much as the next guy because I care a lot about formatting, so it's going to take me a little bit. Anyway, I went back to the early probes and sped us all the way through to current and future missions. Probes have given us a ton of information about our own planet, as well as other planets and about the moon and the sun and various stars and galaxies and nebulae and about deep space. The list just goes on and on. Probes are amazing things. They fail until a lab gets it right and launches it up into space, and I, for one, am super impressed by the ability to slingshot them around other planets to send them somewhere else. That's incredible calculations. I have to think hard when I'm totaling checks at work. I can't imagine the amount of math that goes into that. For the next episode, I'm going to try to look into space race books, but I'm also way into investigating the Voyager Golden Records sent out to connect with alien life. I still have that Transit of Venus book, too, so maybe I'll find it in myself to actually get on that. 
I grabbed a couple books on dark matter, too, because the friend I want to interview is studying with dark matter a bit, in addition to all the Big Bang radiation. And I want to feel prepared to ask her questions and understand the answers. And I want you to feel prepared, too. If you'd like, you can send me questions to ask her. You can also suggest something that I should research by sending me an ask on the Tumblr or tweeting at me at HD in the Void. Still no ratings or reviews on iTunes, which is sad to see. So if you like it, maybe just say so on that platform. And go ahead and recommend me to friends who are into astronomy or science or history or very long lists or just soothing voices. I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy and space. All of it tangos my salsa. I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to tango your salsa too. Tune in on Lord Willing and the Creek Don't Rise September 18th for the next episode and check out sources, some amazing links to timelines and infographics of all these spacefaring machines, the music credits, the script for this episode, and a vocab list at, all one word, fill the void dash with dash space dot tumblr dot com. Hugs and kisses from the void. HD signing off. Mm-hmm.